today we're finally back after a few weeks um, break, and we're going to continue our examination of the Silmarillion, looking uh, through, I guess, chapters seven to nine. And here with me is, of course, Schreeder, and uh, so we'll be discussing the Silmarillion together, going through those chapters and seeing what we can draw out and. Hopefully, um, it'll be it'll be kind of fruitful. So, how how are you going, Shrida? I'm doing all right. You know, just uh, <laughs> just uh, trying to to sort of um, have a better life in 2023 than I did in, uh, in 2022. But <laughs> well, that's good. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? <laughs> well, I hope I hope it works out well. Yeah, yeah, we all are. I think so. <laughs> Yeah, so as I mentioned, we're going to keep going with the Silmarillion today, and um, and look at the three the three chapters that I mentioned, which are chapters. What did I say? Chapter seven of the unrest of the Silmarils, chapter chapter eight, the darkening of Valinor, and chapter nine, flight of the Noldor. And I think these three chapters are kind of the culmination of Feanor's kind of journey, if you like his character and sort of brings the first part of the Silmarillion to a close. Um, because after this, we, we find ourselves back in middle earth and the story sort of takes on its own momentum from there. So I guess to start, um, did you have any sort of thoughts overall as, as it applies to these three chapters? I guess obviously we're going to be talking about, the Silmarillus themselves, but uh, themselves, but I, I guess the character of Feanor is kind of the one big black hole that sort of sucks everything in in these chapters, um, quite powerfully drawn. So yeah, I don't know what, what did you what did you think reading these? Yeah, I guess my my biggest my biggest impression. Mm. It, it was that was that um i had the sense that that fanor was it's hard to describe but but i had the sense that he, that that he, you know he as a character is is much more complicated than the than a text lets on to believe if that makes any sense mm, that's interesting yeah <laughs> um but that's by by design you know it's, it's, but to to be clear that this is not this is not a, an oversight of Tolkien, but no, that, no, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there is some sort of um, some sort of metatextual characterization of Feanor here that that, that we're supposed to pick up on. <laughs> um, mm. That that he's sort of um, a, a bit more um, Machiavellian. Maybe, yeah. yep. then, 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 then a sort of straight reading would let us to believe. Indeed. Um, but I'm not exactly, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure as to, to, to whether that's like legit or not. You know, I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if, um, well, I don't know if like a straight reading would, would, would have us, would have us sort of, you know, uh, be sort of leading in the same direction or if that's, if that's a sort of, mm. uh, a, a bogus reading that's that's too much um sort of in its own head um 
it was just a, a feeling that I had. Um, it's perhaps informed by the conversations that we had um, about the elves in general, uh, you know, especially yeah. as, the, as the show was, was sort of happening. You know, we, we, we talked oh, a lot yes. about <laughs> um, the, the sort of politics of that. But um, so, so, so maybe that was informing me. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that, that was one thing that was just sort of straight on my mind. But yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, no, I think that's it's not a question of it being legit. I think that, um, you know, any text like this or, you know, any other text is going to present to us or it's going to suggest subtextual readings, if you like. And, and yeah, I mean, something that I've gone on about, I guess, through interviews and also in the main sort of podcast is this idea that the text or the Silmarillion in particular is, is kind of, kind of has a bias in it. And we're going to discuss some of that in this, in, throughout these chapters. And that is very much sort of an anti-Feanor bias, as we'll see, and sort of pro-Valar. You know, if you wanted to take a really cynical kind of point of view, I guess you could, you could do that and say, well, you know, this is just kind of extolling one side and, and, and it's, and its values and its point of view over the other. But, you know, in reality, the historical situation was such that neither side was actually more correct or more right than, than either. Um, so, you know, you could take that sort of reading as, as historians often do of real historical texts. And this, the Silmarillion, as, as we've, as, as I've sort of emphasized in, in the past and in interviews again with a lot of, with quite a few scholars, it is kind of a historical text in its own, in its own world. So I think it therefore invites that kind of a, a reading. So I don't think that's illegitimate. And really perhaps it's with the character of Feanor where we sort of start to see that really play out at least at a textual, pardon me, at a textual kind of level. So I think that's interesting. Um, all right, so let's start with chapter seven, I guess. So of the unrest of the Noldor, oh, sorry, of the Silmarils, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't even talk, of the Silmarils and the unrest of the Noldor. I love these chapter chapter titles. Um, yeah. So Wait, sorry, be- before we get into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, must we have must we have a, a sort of booze counter here? Like where where are we at here? Oh. Um, see, seeing as you're already um, you're, you're tripping over your words, you know it, it, oh, it might be. A... <laughs> I've only had one. I've had one glass of wine, people. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Uh, I'm on number four, so we'll see where this goes. Oh, Try and say Silmarillion a lot, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, I don't have so, a position. Uh, still a lot, yeah. uh, you know. A lot of people seem yeah. to. Is it the Silmarillion? Yeah, they always have trouble. Um, yeah, I'm not about to be reading any of these chapter titles. Silmarillion. Soon, so. Yeah, well, you know, we'll see. Mm. <clears throat> so, yes, w- one thing I want to look out for when we're reading these chapters is, is, is sort of a sense of the historical bias in the text, as though we're reading a book of, you know, some sort of account of, of real history, because I think it, it actually invites that kind of reading. Um, and I don't see why, you know, that has to be yet yeah, an illegitimate way to read the text, the book. When I say the text, I feel like I'm a university professor or something. The text, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. It's such a, it's such a distanced kind of way to refer to a piece of imaginative fiction. But anyway, um, 
No, I think you're right, though. I mean, <laughs> I you know I've I've read um, recently. I can't I can't even remember it now. Um, we may as well go and blame the wine. Um, you know, as opposed to the fact that I am clearly starting to suffer from craft syndrome. Um, can't, can't remember a fucking thing. Syndrome. Um, <laughs> That's me all the, the time. The, yeah, yeah. Um, the the Roman poet who 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 um who wrote a lot of um <laughs> stuff about 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 you know the 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 you know yes. all, all of these sort of um political shit that happened. I, I can't mean, remember quite a few of those. Virgil. No, no, no. Yeah, here. You know, it, it may it may be worth getting the thing. I know where it is. Hang on, give me, okay, give me okay. a minute here. <laughs> well, listeners, Sridhar is going to his bookshelf looking for this Roman poet. <laughs> Looks like he's found something. Yes, I, I've gotten something here. Yeah, by Lucan. Um, oh, Lucan. The, okay, the, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the the. Pharsalia. I don't know how you actually say it, but um, mm. you know, the so-called dramatic episodes of the Civil Wars. I've just been reading this, and um, wow. mm. uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not a classicist. I, this is not my area of expertise. I have. I have no idea what I'm talking about here. But um, I can't help but 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 think that uh, someone like Token actually probably did read stuff like this, and well, that yeah, he's, absolutely, he's sort of yeah. basing the basing the the, the sort of text. Mm-hmm. Style mm-hmm. off off of this kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, yep. I I don't I don't think that that it's it's off base to say that that he probably actually meant his text to be to be interpreted in a sort of historical way. The um, mm. in, in in the way that in the way that someone like um, that Lucan would have right is that is that crazy? I mean, no, not at all. I mean, there's from the very start of his sort of creative project, there's the metafictional element. The, the idea that the texts are kind of from the world itself, from the world that they are describing, that they are not written, as it were, from a sort of outside perspective, that in some sense they are an interior perspective. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's, again, sort of invited from, you're invited to, to think that from the start. I mean, a lot of people, when they read the Silmarillion, and I've said this before, don't approach it that way. They approach it as a kind of, uh, you know, I have a question about the world, the metaphysics of the world. How am I going to answer this? Oh, this is what it says in the Silmarillion. One example of this, for example, is the tendency to want to, for a lot of readers, for example, to want to ascribe certain identifications to Tom Bombadil, the character in Lord of the Rings, who, of course, is is, is cut out or excised of every adaptation but has that sort of zany quality quality that doesn't really match onto any any of Tolkien's other uh, races and, you know, he's not an elf, he's obviously not a man, he's not a dwarf, he's not a hobbit, you know, even though he sort of has affinity for hobbit culture because he spends a lot of time amongst them or at least some time where we, we are led together. Um, and, you know, he's something else and so is Goldberry and then there's Goldberry's, you know, his his sort of wife who seems to be some kind of nature spirit nymph-like figure but she's never given a... You know, she's never given a um, a sort of place in the hierarchy per se, and a lot of readers I find want to do that. They want to they want to say, well, no, we have to we have to assign Tom and Goldberry and Goldberry's mother, for example, who's also seems to be some kind of water spirit. We have to assign them to some kind of category. They have to be the 
one of the Valar or one of the Maya, um, you know, these, these sort of, um, angelic or, uh, theological sort of categories that we get in the Silmarillion. And something that's always been sort of very, well, I don't know, how would I say it? That there's something that to me feels very inadequate about that whole move. So I sort of resist that and want to say, no, 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 hang on. There's obviously in the Silmarillion and in the Lord of the Rings, there's obviously things that are not known by the characters, right? And perhaps even things by the main major characters, there are certain things that are not known. And, um, you know, what would Gandalf, who is, who is kind of part of this angelic or demi, this order of demigods, for example, what would he say about Tom Bombadil and what sort of creature Tom Bombadil is? Well, we don't know, but you know, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he wouldn't, wouldn't have a certain idea about that. So, Yes, although we get a kind of theology in the Silmarillion, we get a kind of a story that apparently presents a lot of sort of answers, as it were, to to questions. I think I think it's a mistake to sort of just plug that into the the Lord of the Rings or the the rest of the text and sort of expect it to all come out looking consistent, and coherent. So I think that we're better to read the Silmarillion as a kind of text within the context of the world, as a book within the context of the world, and Therefore, it's going to have certain interests and biases, or at least a certain point of view. We don't have to read it cynically, as cynically as I said before, you know, but I think it's important to sort of read it, um, you know, at least, at least on some level as a product of that world. So yeah, I don't know what you think of that. But. Sure. No, that makes perfect sense. Almost as if it were a sort of a work of historiography, you know, within this. Yeah, but this context. I, yeah. I, I don't even want to use this word, but I'm going to like, it, it's a kind of primitive to in inverted commas work of historiography in that it's not even like something like, for example, Thucydides, which in the real world, Thucydides, of course, Greek historian, you know, really tried to get to the bottom of what were the causes of this war? What were the, we see in Thucydides and also, you know, despite his reputation, also Herodotus, we see an attempt to really reason through the, the causes of war um, and really to develop a sense of um, not just a narrative of, of the of, of, of events, but also an analytic framework um, sort of understanding history. And of course, modern historians ultimately still do that, right? Similarly, and I feel is not really like that. It, it's, it's been called mythology and yes, it, it kind of does have that, um, that quality, I, I guess. Uh, so, so if it's ascribing, if it's ascribing sort of characters, if it's ascribing sort of features of character to certain characters, if you want to put it that way, um, you know, as you mentioned, do we take that at face value or do we say, well, there's probably some complexity that lies behind this that we're not seeing or that's being truncated by the author or that is not being acknowledged. And that's not to say the book is not really dense and complex in itself, but it's one of those books that in its sort of, it's sort of, I know what you mean. It's sort of like, it sort of invites contemplation and um, again, not, not a kind of cynical rereading, but kind of it, it invites sort of questions of itself in a way that I think is interesting. Like, you know, yes. Okay. So Feanor is kind of this, this figure who, who um 
you know, has certain qualities, blah, 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 and sort of strides across the, the sort of mythological view of history that the early Silmarillion has. And then comes to this sort of, in, in chapter nine, which we'll get to, comes to this sort of sudden, but just sort of very noble in, in a sense, heroic perhaps is a better word, kind of end. You know, how do we, if we're going to read the Lord of the Rings, for example, which is of course at least partly inspired by conventions of the novel, which looks at psychology and sort of other things like that. How do we understand that? Do we sort of take it at face value again? Or do we say, uh, well, this is a kind of sketch. It's kind of, it's a mythological sketch akin to the sketch of Achilles in the Iliad. It's not really akin to the sketch that Thucydides, Thucydides gives to, um, you know, any number of his, the historical personages in, in his novel, but or not novel, but in, in his historical text, in his history. Um, so yeah, I don't know, sort of rambling there, but, but I think, yes. In other words, I think conventions of genre are important to think about. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've sort of lost you for, for, I, I sorry, I didn't lose you. I, I, I was following you all the way through. It was <laughs> quite interesting, yeah. but, um, but I, I don't remember exactly how that connected to what I was trying to say, but, but if you want to no, throw I another just... gambit. I probably yeah. just went off on a tangent. Don't worry. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it, it was quite interesting to to hear you to talk about that. I mean, it it, it kind of reminds me of um um if, if I may sort of go go like on a on, mm. on, a, on a tangent of a tangent. Yep. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of um what what it makes me think is 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 that um. Is that token is is hyper aware of the fact that like you know um, at least with a certain kind of uh, with a certain kind of fiction like the 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 discourse is really the thing and 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 he kind of understands it almost to the point that that he he's written a whole sort of fiction that is that is essentially discourse uh, it sounds like <laughs> you know enormously pretentious to say. But, um, but it does, it does seem like he, he's sort of aware of the fact that, um, he's sort of aware of the role that, that, um, that commentary plays mm. in history, you know, uh, again, that, that sounds, that's, uh, you know, you may as well just sort of, uh, gag me and, and, uh, shut me up, but that, that sounds, it's so pretentious, but, <laughs> um, but but yeah, he, he he seems very hip to to certain things like that, right? Like like the the, the idea the idea of um of, of the sort of um the sort of primal role of of of, of the discourse in, yeah. in something you know there's a sort of quote unquote discourse and yeah yeah in any kind of um narrative um yeah 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 and yeah I don't know it it strikes me as weird as I'm reading it now I mean. I, I read the Silmarillion when I was a kid and it just was, I don't understand how I must have understood it back then. I, I, I don't think I did understand it really, but not, not that I do now, but um, I think back then I just, I just must have thought like, Oh, here's like some backstory. But, but now I'm looking at it, you know, and, and every time I, I read more of it, I, I just think, uh, you know, that he, 
he had um he had an idea of the sort of the project that he was sort of trying to to work on i you know i i, I don't know how it shifted as his life went on and whether or not he felt that he actually completed it but um it just seems totally different from from how from how most of the people who sort of read him um mm. actually actually sort of you know portray it you know um, yeah yeah in, in that way yeah but but that's a that's a whole different thing but yeah you know, no, we, we should actually talk about the the yeah no, sure. sure yeah yeah no, yeah no I, I think i was just going off off your mention of lucan and, and sort of yeah agreeing that um you know yeah that it's doing something similar so i think it's a good comparison yeah yes the chapters so okay so chapter seven as I mentioned, of the Silmarils and the unrest of the Noldor. <clears throat> right, it's time for another glass. Um, <laughs> this is so bad, my God. Yeah, this is a well-lubricated episode, if people can <laughs> tell already. Indeed. So we start off in this chapter, of course, with the Silmarils themselves. Important artifacts, obviously. The book is named after these. And... So let me let me quote something. So um so Feanor, this this character who if you're if you've read the Silmarillion you'll know is is sort of this this um uh mythical smith figure almost, but but he's an elf, he's a you know, he's he's sort of a character within the world. And the the author sort of starts off in his description of the Silmarils or the the author I should say, or the the, the narrator, I guess by saying that um, that Feanor was filled with a new thought. Or, the narrator says, it may be that some shadow of foreknowledge came to him of the doom that drew near, and he pondered how he might, how the light of the trees, the glory of the blessed realm might be preserved imperishable. And of course, like the, Silmar- the Silmarils themselves, the trees and the light that the trees give off are kind of symbolic in multiple ways and also metaphorical, I suppose, in multiple ways as well. We might come back to that. And then he creates the Silmarils, these three jewels. As three great jewels they were in form. And then it says, but not until the end when Feanor shall return, who perished ere the sun was made and sits now in the halls of Awadian, and comes no more among his kin. Not until the sun passes and the moon falls shall it be known of what substance they were made. So immediately... Again, we're sort of distanced from the event, right? Um, we're told that Feanor is in the halls of awaiting, so we sort of know he dies, as it were. And we also don't know what the Silmarils are made of. We're not going to know that till the end of time. Um, so again, there's a kind of there's a bit of convention here that that relates back to the genres that we've been talking about, the sort of genre of historical uh, chronologizing, if you like. That sense that all the events that have, that we're reading about here have already taken place. They're just being summarized now. They're being, they're being addressed in, in this, in this book and that the, the, the narrator knows the outcome. So there's no, there's no uncertainty on the part of the narrator. So I guess it'd be interesting to start then with the Silmarils th- themselves. Um, there's so much to say. <laughs> I don't know where to begin, but. So, so they're, they're designed, first of all, to, to sort of trap the light of the trees or at least preserve the light of the trees. And we know that sort of 
this theme of preserving, of, of keeping alive, of sort of maintaining the light, literally in this case, but, but also that can stand in for sort of other features of, of, of sort of human culture or culture itself, I guess, is, you know, comes to the fore in the, the Silmarils. Um, and I guess when I read the Silmarillion, that's, that's what stands out to me more than the sort of physicality of the objects themselves. But of course, in the story, they do have a kind of physicality and certain features. Um, they, they're eventually in this chapter hallowed by one of the gods that is sort of made holy in a sense that they're given a sort of, um, sort of, uh, I don't know what, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a, a radiance beyond that merely of, of the, like the physical light that they give off, but they're sort of imbued with, 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 with a kind of purity. And that gives them, of course, just more mojo <laughs> to put it that way. And, and, and so, and of course, in the next chapter, chapter eight, the trees are destroyed by Morgoth and Ungoliant will come to Ungoliant. And so, of course, Feanor's premonition, if you like, it turns out to be true, at least if we believe the narrator. And, <laughs> and, um, and so all the drama of the, of the next three chapters, of course, comes out of that, out of this, um, this conflict between the Valar and, and, and the, um, and, and Feanor himself and the creative act of, Creation, um, both have a sort of claim on the Silmarils. The light of, of Silmarils is, is sort of originally, in some sense, the divine light of creation. But Feanor has created them. He, they are sort of a, a unique creation. They cannot be redone. They cannot be um, cannot be created, you know, over again in at least in the same way. So. So the question then is, you know, what what is Feanor to do? And of course, we all know the answer. He um he sort of refuses that. He ref- refuses the the request to sort of break them up and sort of regenerate <laughs> the light of the trees. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. So I guess yeah, starting with the Silmarils themselves. Um, <sighs> again, there's so many sort of ways we could go with this but yeah what what strikes you as the most i guess interesting path to look at when we when we're when we're sort of approaching the Silmarils in this chapter that sounds like such a high schooly question (laughs) (laughs) well i mean you know (laughs) (laughs) you should have seen the questions that i was feeling in high school (laughs) um that makes me that that makes my high school teachers sound like pedos, but they were not. But um, <laughs> um yeah. Uh, so I don't know if this is the most interesting avenue, but but one thing that struck me um, as I was reading this, and mm. um, you know, quite frankly, like I, I think in general, as I've been sort of re- reading more token, um, as uh, as I've been doing this podcast, is that. Um, so there's something there's something quite interesting about about the way that um let's say like the, the sort of um pre Abrahamic religions treat um their gods, right? So um 
the 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 Hellenistic gods, uh, and and really even like the the sort of uh, Hindu gods and, and the sort of um, classical Hindu mythologies, not so much the sort of modern sort of chauvinist re- revisionist versions of them that are so popular. Um, the gods are flawed, right? They're, they're, they're many and they're flawed and they're, and they're quite human in, in many ways. And, um, I really appreciated that about the, 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 um, the religions and the, and the, and the texts because, uh, because I, because I think, you know, this is a mythology that actually sort of reflects something of humanity as opposed to the sort of Abrahamic religion, which I think is largely, uh, it, it it misses a lot of that kind of um, the 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 meatiness that that kind of um, storytelling has with with the, with the way the gods act. Um, mm-hmm. But but the the relevant fact here is that um, what what I, what I find quite interesting is is that um, that the token doesn't merely make the Silmarils um, an object of metaphysical attraction right they're not they're not just uh beautiful in a sort of spiritual sense they're 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 literally beautiful and people people like you know they actually do lust after them Mm, yeah um there's like a lustfulness to 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 and and this this also happens with the ring I don't know. Is there anything to that? I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. There is a kind of desirability, yeah, in a, in a physical sense. And of course, this is where I think, as the sort of central objects of the text, they're so interesting because there's a kind of <laughs> there's a kind of physical attraction to them, as you mentioned. That yeah, that there's a kind of symbolic, there's a kind of metaphorical dimension, metaphorical of of sort of the creative output more generally of um, of sort of the uh, well, there's perhaps so many so many layers of metaphor in, in a sense there. Um, almost too many to sort of think about the, the sort of symbolic of the the, the sort of primal um, primal creative impulse, but also the purity of that creative impulse. Um, not necessarily sort of primal goodness, but just that, that sheer sort of creative drive. And of course, Feanor himself has, is a kind of uh, creator figure as are many of the characters in this book, starting with the Godhead himself. Um, yeah. <laughs> just sort of being drawn to something pretty, you know, almost. It's, it's yeah, just like, yeah. oh, this is, yeah, it's, it's perhaps it is really like lustful. Yeah, yeah, perhaps emblematic, just of aesthetic perfection. Um, that their works of art, in addition, you know, in addition to sort of being symbolic of, of of something, or in addition to their sort of utility, which is to in in the story to house this light, right? Um, so yes, no, so so yes. In other words, yes, I agree with you. There is, of course, yeah. There is, and, and Mor- Morgoth himself, who we haven't mentioned yet, but who, of course, is, is this kind of Satan figure, as you said, lusts after the Silmarils and does so, well, the text doesn't spell out why, but presumably because, again, they sort of, they literally house the light, which ultimately descends from that sort of original 
um, creative, the creative impulse. And, and in every, in each stage along the story, he sort of wants to possess that and, and sort of is continually foiled. So, um, so yeah, no, I think there's absolute, absolutely sort of legitimacy there. Um, and, and then, so, so Feanor creates these, the Silmarils themselves, three of them, and we're given a sort of a, a beautiful description of them. They sort of, they house in, in, in a fire, uh, that is within it and yet all parts of it. And, you know, he, he really, Feanor, that is, blends the light of the trees of Valinor, which lives in them yet, though the trees now have long withered and shine no more. So again, there's this authorial sort of knowing, already know what the narrator at all, at all times knows sort of what is, what is happening, what will happen in the context of the story. And, and then of course we've mentioned Morgoth. Morgoth starts to go among the Noldor in Valinor and whispers certain lies to them. The Valar are not really aware of this, but the Noldor, including Feanor, led by Feanor, really begin to murmur against them. And many became filled with pride, forgetting how much of what they had and knew came to them as a gift from the Valar. So again, we're sort of getting getting this kind of the, the narrator is always running kind of defense for the Valar in this story because, as we'll see, they, they sort of make all, the, all these bad choices. But the narrator is always kind of say, "Well, you know, um, it's really the Noldor's fault." Um, after all, um, you know, they're sort of not, they're not grateful enough. And maybe some of that just reflects Tolkien's theology of sort of obedience, you know, in Catholic theology. Well, you know, you, you got to sort of obey God's will, you know, then everything will turn out right. And maybe that's true, but I think there's still a tension in the story, regardless of whether Tolkien intended it or not, um, between the, the sort of the, the choices that the Valar make and also the, uh, the, the Noldor, um, and, and the sort of the stories, perspective on the Noldor and particularly Feanor. Yeah, so so we get told that Feanor begins to love the Silmarils with a greedy love and grudge the sight of them to all, so he, he sort of locks them away. And then the text says something really interesting, which I wanted to comment on in my edition, page 70, that's the HarperCollins. It says, High princes were Feanor and Fingolf, and of course the half-brothers, the elder sons of Finway, honoured by all in Aman. But now they grew proud and jealous, uh, each of his rights and possessions. And we never hear about this again, but the text here does suggest that both Feanor and Fingolfin grew, grow, grow jealous of their possessions. This is, as far as I can tell, the only time that Feanor is ever, um, sorry, that Fingolfin is ever treated as a kind of equal in terms of his moral blightedness to Feanor. Usually later in the text, he's always the perfect sort of heroic figure. And here we're told that, well, Fingolfin as well, is sort of grows grows jealous of his possessions and rights, and so one wonders here. This is this where it comes back to your comment before about the characterization of Feanor. One wonders here. Perhaps the the narrator is saying less than he knows, and that Fingolfin as well is is also in part to blame for the struggle. Again, if this were Thucydides, we would we would be given a sort of a one assumes at least. It's plausible to assume, let's say, we might be given a a much more balanced sort of rendition or balanced profile of both personalities, right? Feanor was this, but also Fingolfin was kind of vain and, you know, also kind of, you know, self-righteous, you know, and one can sort of 
imagine that being plausible, right? Think, you know, he, he sort of, he, he wanted to, you know, he's, he's a bit jealous of Feanor and, and his father's, um, affections towards Feanor. And so, so perhaps there's a hint of that here, but we don't really, um, it, it's not really dwelt on. And then it just set, it just sort of glides over that and says, um, you know, Melkor set new lies about whispers came to Feanor that Fingolfin and his sons were plotting to usurp the leadership of Finway. Of course, this is a, a kind of a lie and that the elder line of Feanor and to supplant them by the leaf of the Valar. And then of course we get Feanor's confrontation with Fingolfin, which is treated as, you know, Feanor is kind of this, you know, he's acting on false counsel and the evil whisperings of, of Melkor. And, and Fingolfin here is presented as kind of a stoic figure almost. Um, you know, he doesn't react. He's not reactive. And so Feanor becomes jealous, but Melkor is sort of found out. And then Feanor is exiled with his, and his father follows him. So there's this great love between his father and Feanor, which will become important. And so, so we have this drama developing and then the Valar have a kind of a, showdown with Melkor. He departs in shame for he was himself in peril and saw not his time yet for revenge. But his heart was black in anger. And then, of course, we get to chapter 8 and the darkening of Valinor. So, you know, we're beginning to see... So we see the creation of the Silmarils. We're sort of introduced to the dissension in the family, the half-brothers. Feanor is mostly blamed, but there's perhaps this little hint that the author is leaving something out. I don't know. When you read that, I don't know if you yeah felt, felt something similar or you feel that chapter 7 is, is sort of unjustly biased against... Feanor, as I tend to think, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if unjustly <laughs> falls into my, yeah, yeah, my, um, my lingo, but, uh, I'm not as well versed in the thing as you are. So, <laughs> um, to me, it seems rather finely, uh, versed, but sorry, uh, it seems, uh, rather finely justified, but, um, yeah, yeah. I, I did, I did find myself thinking in general, throughout that chapter of um the characterization of of Virgil of of the, of the sort of rumor I, I don't remember if 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 she was characterized as like a monster but but that's the sort of monster of the, of the rumor in in Virgil's Aeneid hmm. um do you, do you remember this I, I don't know whose translation this is so apologies <laughs> if if anyone's uh you know sort of latinate <laughs> I'm sure it's fine, don't worry. Uh, yeah, but uh, rumor raced at once through Libya's great cities. Rumor oh, right. yeah. compared with whom no other is a swift. She flourishes by speed and gains strength as she goes. First limited by fear, she soon reaches into the sky, walks on the ground and hides her head in the clouds. Earth incites to anger against the gods, so they say. For her last, a monster, vast and terrible, fleet-winged mm. and swift-foot, sister to... I don't know how you say this. Coes, Cius, and Enceladus, <laughs> who for every yeah. feather on her body has as many watchful eyes below, marvelous to tell, as many tongues speaking, as many listening ears. Mm. She flies screeching by night through the shadows between earth and sky, never closing her eyelids in sweet sleep. The <laughs> day she sits on guard on tall rooftops or high towers and scares great cities as tenacious of lies and evil as she is messenger of truth. Now in delight, she filled the ears of the nations with endless gossip, singing fact and fiction alike. <laughs> Aeneas has come born of Trojan blood, a man whom lovely Dido deigns to unite with. 
uh, now they're spending the whole winter together in indulgence, forgetting their royalty, trapped by <laughs> shameless passion. The, the vile goddess spread this here and there on men's lips. Immediately, she, she slanted her course towards King Yarvis and inflamed his mind those words and fueled his anger. <laughs> um, have a drink, ladies and gentlemen. That was a passage from... Uh, what is that? Book four, book uh, four lines yeah. one seventy three yeah. to one ninety seven. Wow, um, beautiful! Wow. Yeah, I love um, that actually. <laughs> yeah, that, but um, whenever I hear of like the the the, the whispers, you know, mm, <laughs> this mm. is what I think of, and um, yeah, um, and yeah. whenever I hear whenever I hear of any sort of um sort of um sort of political machinations that 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 aren't um that aren't sort of Front, front and center. This mm. is what I think of, and uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, absolutely, but, that's great. Mm. Um, I love all the classical, uh, yeah, stuff being brought in. <laughs> why, why thank you? But <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, go on. This, this is actually a question that I have. Um, mm. Like, whenever we hear of, of the sort of like you know the whisperings of, of Melkor, you know, or, or anything like that, um, what are we supposed to make? of that like what exactly what exactly is happening um are we supposed to have like a clear picture of it is is there a mm. clear picture that i'm missing um, um because this mm. this is what i imagine you know what i imagine is sort of like uh, a sort of hidden r- rumor campaign um that's not unlike the um mm. the uh the description sort of, of the, the monster uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in the um <laughs> I don't know. I mean, am, am, am I missing something? Like, what is is there anything? Is there is there any point at which it's it's sort of clearly stated what, hmm. um, what is the rumor, and the whispering that happens? My impression is similar to yours. Yeah, that, that there's a kind of he's speaking in in whispers and and spreading dissension and people. You know, that thing gets carried on amongst the population, and therefore, you know, in the end there's this general anxiety that's sowed, you know, in the way in, in of, of a rumor or, or sort of propaganda, if you want a modern sense of it, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't think there's any, yeah. I mean, it is vague in, in, in its description, but yeah, I think that's what we're meant to think um, that there's, that he's sort of, a, that he's cunning in, 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 you know, who he talks to and, and who, you know, who he's trying to influence. And that just says that many lean towards him. You know, he would often walk among them amid his fair words. They were woven so subtly that many heard them believed in recollection that they arose from their own thoughts. Visions would, he would conjure in their hearts, um, of the mighty realms that, um, that they could have ruled at their own will in power and freedom in the East that is in middle earth. And then whispers abroad uh, went abroad that the Valar had brought the elder to a man because of their jealousy. So it's unclear here if Melkor is, is sort of saying, well, the Valar are jealous, or if he's just planting ideas like, well, you know, you could, you could sort of, you could have all these realms, you know, and then the elves themselves are sort of thinking, well, you know, we're only here because, because the Valar are keeping us here, you know? So, He's planning certain ideas and then they're being extra- extrapolated. Um, and I guess, but by the, the hearers themselves. And I guess maybe that there's something there again in, in, in the quote you just gave from Virgil, how it sort of grows, the rumor grows and, and devours. Um, 
yeah, that's, so it is really just that that yeah, that there isn't yeah. there isn't really anything concrete to it. It is mm, just yeah, yeah. There's not a there's not a sort of a campaign the, of um, speeches and you know <laughs> I don't think yeah that, yeah. <laughs> the whispering is actually just a thing. Like mm. th- th- there's nothing really concrete to yes. the whispering. It's just mm. whispering. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just it's rumor mongering and. You know, the text, as I said, the text kind of suggests, well, you know, Melker isn't necessarily planting all the sort of thoughts in people's heads. There's sort of certain, there are certain ideas and you put two and two together and then you sort of think, well, you know, maybe it's like this, sort of a conspiracy, if you like. That's perhaps another another analog, yes. Conspiracy theory yeah. that the Valor are keeping us here, you know, there's kind of conspiracy about this. Um, again, yes, it's it's not made sort of, it's not, one has to read between the lines, I, I suppose, as is the case in the Silmarillion, where much of the narration is distant, <laughs> to say the least. Um, dense, but also distant. And as I mentioned, the narrator knows the outcome, so there's always perhaps the narrator is is is, is incentivized to, to try and make events fit together in a way that make, makes sense. I mean... Um, you know, as historians often perhaps acknowledge. So, so there's maybe that going on as well. That's um, the point. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. What did you get from that, from that scene or from that uh, chapter? Well, no, I think I agree. I mean, yeah, Melkor is, yeah, as, as I mentioned, yeah, his whispers are, are just that, the suggestion that he's not necessarily running around giving speeches and, and, and sort of denouncing the valor. He's letting other people come to the, the conclusions that they will, which happened to. He's out there making like he's out. Oh, mm. that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's kind of that deceptive, deceptive whispers, the, the sort of Satan trope, if you want to <laughs> call it a trope. Yeah. One can also look at Milton, of course, and we know that in Tolkien's own story, Sauron, of course, will will perfect this kind of strategy later on with the elves and the Numenorians. Although there, especially in Numenor, he might be doing some speechifying. Actually, it's. It's a little more political, overt, overtly sort of political. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so there, there are these, as, as we've mentioned, there are rumors, there are uncertainties in the elves, there are dissensions in the population. There's dissensions between the brothers Fingolfin and Feanor. Then, of course, Melkor takes or makes use of this. Let's say he recruits Ungoliant, who is some sort of spirit in the form of a giant spider, <laughs> and convinces Ungoliant. Um, who, who lays on a mountaintop, dark Ungoliant lay, and she made a ladder of woven ropes and cast it down, and Melkor climbed upon it and came to that high place. It stood beside her, looking out upon the guarded realm. Below them lay the woods of Orome, and westward shimmered the fields and pastures of Yvanna, gold beneath the tall wheat of the gods. But Melkor looked north and saw afar the shining plain, the silver domes of Valmar, gleaming in the mingling lights of Telperion and Laurelin. Lovely image, but then, of course, what do they do? They race there and and they destroy the trees. So the sort of primal light, which is first instantiated in the lamps, is the lamps are destroyed, and then now the, this primal light is sort of given um, is, is is given physical form in the trees, and now the trees are about to be destroyed destroyed as well. So where does this primal light now reside? Well. The Silmarils. So now Mel- Melkor has sowed all this dissension. So we're we're ready for a kind of explosion of of unrest 
in in the Noldor. And of course, we have Feanor himself, literally the spirit of fire. So <laughs> things are probably not going to go well, which of course, again, the narrator knows. And then they destroy the trees and then the unlight of Ungoliant rises up even to the roots of the trees and Melkor sprang, sprang upon the mound. And with his black smear, his spear, <laughs> with his black smear, spear, he smote each tree to its core, uh, wounded them deep, and their sap poured forth, as it were, their blood, and was spilled upon the ground. But Angolian sucked it up and going, then from the tree to tree, she set her black beak to the beak to the wounds, till they were drained, and the poison of death that was in her went into their tissues and withered them, root, branch, and leaf, and they died. Quite a, quite an image. So. Tragedy. And then Mark, Melkor yeah, escapes. <laughs> yeah. So what happens next? Well, so we come to chapter nine, the flight of the Nolder, which again, I think is the, the real apotheosis of Feanor's story, this first act of the Silmarillion. So I guess before we get to that, any thoughts on what's happened so far? So, you know, Feanor, we have created these Silmarils. Morgoth has so dissension and lies. We've talked about that. Um, and, now the trees are destroyed. Any thoughts on Ongolian, this giant spider that sort of comes out of nowhere? <laughs> and, you know, the destruction of the trees. Not really. I mean, my sense, it's kind of facetious, but my mm. sense is that, is it, is that this is Tolkien's, uh, sort of sense of fantasy. Yeah. Coming through at a time. Yeah, yeah. That, the sort of classical token scholars necess- not not necessarily uh you know would not have necessarily uh put it you know at, at that sense at that, at that time right i i just had the sense that this is this is a totally sort of gratuitous in the best sense of the word uh <laughs> sort of uh, fantasy that that's just um breaking forth in in, in the text mm-hmm. that uh some of the more um mm-hmm. maybe, uh, for lack of a better word boring critics of token uh wouldn't necessarily uh, have anything to do with but, it's not magic um, realist I, enough is it you know yeah. <laughs> yeah nor is it quite uh catholic enough but <laughs> maybe not uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't really know i i don't i mean i i i don't really know what to make of it other than it's i yeah. i like i like that part it was fun you know it, yeah yeah, it, yeah. it's quite fun and and i i think I mean, we kind of talked about this with the, I think with the Hobbit, um, mm. you know, it's a shame that he was such a good writer and he was, he was, um, you know, so often so fun to read he, in, yeah. in, in, in a sort of normal sense, right? Not in like a, <laughs> you know, this is like a, you know, this is like your literary criticism class or this is your, this is your like <laughs> yeah, yeah. theology class or any, any sort of, you know, shit like that. You know, he's just, he's just like a, fun person to read yeah absolutely and yeah this is this is to me sort of in that same realm like he, he's sort of tapping to that same thing and mm. i don't know may, maybe someone who knows more about token than i do could sort of <laughs> find some stuff to talk about but but to me this is just like oh yeah like now nah, you know it's on baby <laughs> yeah i don't think yeah no i don't want to downplay that at all like it is fun like it's um yeah it's a great sort of um yeah, and the description of, of the sort of uh, the unlight of Angolian. I mean, yeah, on a symbolic level, obviously there's kind of a, um, you know, Angolian represents not only like 
the antithesis of the light, but also like that somehow the darkness incarnate or the darkness made physical, you know, in a real substantial ontological kind of way. <laughs> um, but yes, it, but it's fun. Yeah. Giant spider, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And then the, yeah. the interaction, <laughs> the, the interaction between Morgoth and, and, and Golian is kind of funny, you know, he, he's sort of, he wants, you know, he doesn't want to give her the Silmarils, obviously, because she wants to eat those. You know, <laughs> will, will, will they have all thy world for thy, thy belly? She says, um, hunger and darker yet, hu- sorry, huger and darker yet grew Ungolian, but her lust was unsated. Uh, with one hand thou givest, she said, but with the left hand, open thy right hand. In his right hand, Morgoth, Morgoth held close to Silmarils. So again, we're seeing the Silmarils as these objects of lust, yes, that were locked in crystal casket. They began to burn him. So, you know, he's sort of, he's unworthy of them, his, you know, of, of their purity. His hand was clenched in pain, but he would not open it. Nay, he said, thou hast had thy due. For with my power that I put into thee, thy work was accomplished. I need thee no more. These things thou shalt not have nor see. I name them unto myself forever. And then, of course, she tries to take them, but the Belrogs come and save him. So um, good on good on the Belrogs. So, and then, then she sort of goes away and the, or she, she escapes and the narrator, I'm trying to find the passage, the narrator notes that of the fate of Ungoliant, no tale tells, yet some have said that she ended long ago when in her uttermost famine she devoured herself at last. Sort of a, a hint perhaps of tragedy there, something of the tragic about Ungoliant, the pathetic, but also um, the grotesque as, as well. Obviously, as readers of The Lord of the Rings will know from from um, Shelob, of course, who's sort of said to be a, a spawn of Ungoliant. Um, something of the Lovecraftian part. Sure, sure, yeah. So, yes. I, th- I, think, I think that's the right, that's the right term. Yeah. Morgoth is a kind of rational... So, so certainly it's pathetic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Morgoth is a kind of rational evil. He's the satanic figure. But, but then occasionally in Tolkien's work, you also get that sort of... Um, that sort of Lovecraftian cosmic horror will, will sort of creep through. I think you see it in Ungoliant to an extent in Shelob as well, but also in like in The Lord of the Rings, the, the sort of these these sort of unaccounted for figures. One, one could even make the claim that Tom Bombadil is a kind of, uh, he's a kind of positive version of that. He's a kind of. Um, un- yeah. He's like a chaotic. He's a chaos chaotic agent, but yeah. Neutral or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Chaotic neutral. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's whatever a good way to call them. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's what, that's, I think I, I remember <laughs> taking a test one time. I think oh, that's yeah. what I ended up being. Oh yeah. So I'll take it. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, you look a bit like Tom Bombadil. You need the beard, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give me a couple more days. I'll... <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got the hair, the, the hair going everywhere and sort of crazy look in his eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I joke, I joke. But, um, <laughs> but yes, Tom Bombadil, you know, if you, there's always, there's not necessarily like threat in Tom Bombadil. He's always, he's always like a bit benevolent, but, but there's, like he wouldn't want to cross Tom Bombadil. I don't think he'd, like he's not going to kill you, but he might do something kind of crazy to you, or, or you know, <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, that occasionally that, that that kind of stuff peeks through. And so yeah, finally we get to chapter nine, which is quite a long chapter, and as I mentioned, is is really the culmination of Feanor's story. As the chapter suggests, the Noldor leave Middle Earth. They do so at the behest of Feanor who does give a rousing speech, talking about speeches. Of course, what this is in the wake of, well, the, the Silmarils are taken, of course. The Valar say, look, can, you, can we open them up? Can we re, regenerate the trees, you know? But, of course, to do this, the Silmarils would have to be destroyed. 
but they're works of art. They're sort of singular works of art. They can't be replicated. And so Feanor says no. And then, of course, he finds out that his father is, has been killed as Morgoth escaped. So Feanor is is in a bit of a a mood, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> and he's pissed off at the Valar not only because he now sees them as kind of jailers in a sense, but also because in in uh, in insisting that he be present in the, to discuss the matter of the Silmarils, he's sort of he, he's been um, absent from his father. So the text sort of mentions, well, you know, even if he'd been there, he would have been slain as well, you know, by Morgoth. He wouldn't have. But even so, I think that's a little bit um, disingenuous on the part of the narrator. I think that Feanor perhaps would almost have preferred to have just been slain than to have than to have lost his father. So that's the impression I get anyway. <laughs> so Feanor's in a bad mood. And then he moves the, the Noldor, rouses them, great rhetoric, to rebellion, and they're on their way to Middle-earth. And then, of course, once they try to leave for Middle-earth, they encounter the Teleri, we get the first kin slaying, and, of course, then the burning of the ships, and Feanor sort of becomes as one Fey, as the text puts it, and seems to hold quite quite the grudge, quite the resentment to his half-brother, and so denies him passage in the ships. So Fingolfin and his following make this epic journey over the grinding ice at the top of the world sort of thing in the, the sort of Arctic regions of, of Middle-earth, or, or of, sorry, of Arda into Middle-earth and then lose a whole lot of people in the way. It's a tragic episode all by itself, and then they come down and they reunite. But there's a lot of dissension, obviously, because Feanor was a bit of a dick. So, I mean, that's that's just a bare-bones summary, but... So th- this chapter is enormous. Um, a lot, a lot is happening. It's very dense. I don't know. What was your, yeah, I guess again, just I'm interested to hear what you sort of, what you sort of think of this chapter. How do you see Feanor's character sort of, to use that horrible word, the sort of arc of Feanor's character? How does it, how is it composed in this chapter? How does it follow on from the, the kind of somewhat more relatable or the somewhat at least sympathetic events of the previous chapter? Does he go mad? Does he, is he just practicing a bit of Machiavellian realpolitik or what's going on? Well, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm curious what you'll think about it. Um, yeah, I mean. My my sense was, was actually that I felt a lot more sympathetic to his character after this chapter than the previous ones. Actually. Oh, really? So, oh, yeah. It's interesting. Even after his, like, actions, sort of burning the ships and all this. Yeah, I mean... I just got the sense that he was he was up against. <laughs> I'm saying it out loud, and it sounds just dumb. But um, <laughs> you know, I was reading this chapter, and I was like, "Oh, he's really dealing with some shit." You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. like fair, you know, fair game. <laughs> yeah, he's sort of in that fog of grief and just just total like uncertainty, total sort of yeah, yeah, like you know. In general, as a, as a character, I mean, I, I don't know that I would actually feel this way with, like, you know, real politicians. <laughs> um, because I'd like to think that I have a, a, a good sense of being mm. sort of appropriately cynical about our leaders. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not one of these people who's, uh, you know, dying to take selfies with the, <laughs> with the vice president or anything like that or with the first lady. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not one of these people. I, I, I think your general position should be one of skepticism yeah um against yeah. all people who are elected officials yeah yeah um but with fictional characters you know sometimes there crosses 
you know, they cross some sort of threshold at a certain point where you're like, oh, you know, now they're just, now they're just sort of, now they're just in the, in the shitter, right? Like now they're just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I kind of feel that like this chapter was the one where I was like, all right, fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Is that crazy? <laughs> no, no. I mean, yeah, he's in this miasma of kind of uncertainty and, and grief and, and not only his father, but also the Silmarils themselves, which we're told, you know, are sort of very, very dear sort of, of, of like artworks, you know, and Feanor of course doesn't on some level, you know, he doesn't order the, the, the massacre of the elves in the, the, the kin slaying, but it sort of seems to allow it to happen. Right. Because he's got a goal and sort of sure, sure. ends justify the means sort of things. And then, but, but then the burning of the ships is a kind of petty revenge or, you know, for, for slights that perhaps have not, you know, we're not, we're not merited, you know, we're not given. Um, no, it's so, yeah, that is a kind of pathetic and pathetic in the, in the sort of stricter sense. Like he, he becomes sort of a pathetic character and, and his heroism sort of whittles away at that point. Um, That's exactly it. Yeah. But we start yeah. to see. He becomes, he becomes a sort of case yeah. study in, in sort of, uh, in human weakness. Yeah. 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 Or, I mean, or I guess elvish weakness, but, but I mean, yeah. but by this point, you know, he, he's reduced to something that is, that is, yeah. human, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. He's reduced to sort of his, ba- the baser, yeah, impulses. He sort of regains some of that heroism. Of course, he also, also, um, I should have mentioned before, of course, an important point we get in this chapter is, of course, they, the oath of Feanor, Feanor and his son swear an oath. So to, to, to take back the Silmarils. So that was an important part of, the beginning of the chapter when the Silmarils are stolen and, and Feanor vows to take them back, of course. And it, so we get a sort of reiteration of that when he, uh, when he dies, uh, or have I skipped a chapter here? Um, I think I have skipped a chapter, haven't I? If you have, I've read the chapter. I mean, no, he does die in this one, doesn't he? Oh no. He dies, I guess, in Sun and Moon. Now I am confused. <laughs> I can't remember. No, he dies in chapter 13. Yeah, of course. Sorry. Of the return of the Noldor. <laughs> I guess it's, it's mm. worth talking about that point because between chapter 13 and chapter 9, we get, uh, we return to Middle Earth and find out what happens with the Sindar and, and of course, the Sun of the Moon. Let's get that mythological sort of chapter. But yes, he, I guess the point I was trying to make was he sort of regains his heroic stature to an extent before he dies, but also on the road or even the aftermath of the kinslaying itself, there is a confrontation with Mandos perhaps, or perhaps a, as the text says, a messenger or a herald of Manwe. We get the doom of the Noldor, of course. Tears are numbered, ye shall shed. They're exiled from Valinor, um, they're shut out, etc. But Feanor gives a kind of heroic response. And of course, we do still have to, at this point, keep in mind his future actions, his future sort of degeneration. But nonetheless, he has a kind of heroic quality here that he regains when he, you know, in his death as well. He says, we have sworn and not lightly the oath we will keep. Uh, we are threatened uh, with many evils and treason, not least. But one thing is not said that we shall suffer from cowardice, from cravens or the fear of cravens. Therefore, I say, we will go on. And this doom, I add, the deeds um, that we shall do shall be the matter of song until the last days of Arda. It's a, it's a very, uh, you know, heroic ethos, right? But in that our Finafin forsook the march, his other half-brother. But as I mentioned, Feanor and Fingolfin continue on. Now, where does he say, then he destroys the ships? Yep. Yeah. So he sort of, 
he relinquishes some of that heroism becomes as we mentioned somewhat pathetic and the story sort of we're, we're left there as Fingolfin and his host of Noldor of the Noldor pass over the ice as they've been denied the the passage uh, via ship despite the the judgment that the tech that the book the narrator if you want lays on him you know there's still some sense of Feanor as as you know as a figure of to, to be revered right and he evidently is revered, at least to some extent, um, in later memory, and the narrator seems to agree with that. So I don't know. Um, given that there was sort of, what, what, what's your diagnosis of Feanor's character as it's presented here? And in the end, do we do we have reason for thinking that the text is kind of biased, you know, in favour of his half brothers, or well, Fingolfin especially, or in favour of him, or in favour of him? Well, I don't think it's that. I think the narrator clearly is like. Yeah, he's like heroic, but also like kind of shit. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I think a Silmarillion written from the point of view of Feanor's followers would be very different, for example. Or at least it would be, right. it would emphasize Fungolfin's culpability in events, which again, there's kind of intimations of, but not much is said. <laughs> sure, sure. Sorry, we're, we're, we're getting to the sloppy point of the podcast here. Oh, no. We're, we're both a bit, a bit tipsy now. No, I was just saying, like, is is it is it is is the text kind of does it does it give justice to Feanor, or do you think it judges too harshly given the events that occur or that are said to have occurred? My sense is that is that it judges a bit too harshly. That's at least what I felt just sort of on this mm. um, reading through. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I just I I my my sense is that um, that Feanor is obviously flawed, but um he's not he's not flawed in ways that are sort of fundamentally different to to um mm-hmm. other elves or to to his 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 um his kin um i i'm i'm not so sure that if we sort of if we sort of argued about free will say mm. in this case um I, i'm not so sure that that um that I, I would want to sort of throw him under the bus in the same way. I, I think I think I think given his situation and his and his sort of priors, hmm. I don't think that he acted extraordinarily badly. Interesting. Yeah. I think okay. he, he I think he he acted moderately badly. <laughs> and he got his comeuppance for it. Yeah. And yeah. uh, you know, you know, you know, one gets one what one deserves, but you know, what else is there to do in life, mm. you know, as it were? And uh and there's yeah. that, you know. Yeah. But I, I I don't get the sense that, that he sort of was uh mm. Mm. was necessarily deserving of the sort of um the sort of yeah. throwdown that he that he sort of earned. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Um that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree that um, perhaps he's judged a little harshly. Although, of course, he is sort of the, the sort of the major figure. Um, uh, of of the this part of the book, so it's hard to sort of say who else deserves kind of. I mean, Fingolfin doesn't of course, well, isn't said to have created a sort of equivalently important artifact such as the Silmarils apparently are. But so, you know, perhaps less blame can be put there. Still, at the same time, um, 
yeah, th- there is a kind of, there's a kind of minimization of sort of historic forces, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, as often modern historians, for example, will appeal to. And so Feyenoord is, sort of embodies a big man, a great man, a big man, a great man view of history, you know, which, you know, which may or may not have some validity and, and perhaps some historians in the modern period actually tend to minimize personalities where, where that's important. But, um, yeah, certainly one could, I think, make an argument at least that he's sort of treated unfairly, at least to some extent. There you are. Pardon me. Sorry, I lost you. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's, I guess that's what I would say about it. Yeah. Wait, sorry. Um, I think I lost you before you, Oh. you maybe thought I did, but, but, um, I, I got basically nothing of what you, what you were going to oh. say about. <laughs> oh, but no. Sorry. <laughs> that's not good. Um, yeah, no, I was just saying. If, that, if you think, um, the, if you think the microphone got it, you can give me a condensed summary. I think it, well, I think it did, but yeah, it's hard to know. Um, yeah, no, I was just saying that, that, that there's, there's, um, there's perhaps less space to, to blame Feyenoord in the text, but, you know, considering that he, he doesn't sort of have an equivalent project, I guess, as the Silmarils themselves, for example, but, you know, but having said that, perhaps treats him a little more harshly than a modern historian, for example, would if, um, oh, <laughs> now I'm like losing. Um, it treats him a little, a little less, a little more harshly than perhaps modern historians would considering that, you know, modern historians tend to minimize the, the, uh, the play, the place that individuals play in history and to perhaps exacerbate the role that force historical forces and, and other conditions play and maybe that's a mistake of modern history but um you know if we were get a if we were to get a thucydidean view of Feyenoord, i think we perhaps would have had a more balanced analysis of the causes and outcomes of the events being depicted but um that's not to say the silmarillion is like a bad book because it's like it's like what makes it inter- what makes it interesting is that it's a kind of again a sort of mythological a text framed as a, in part mythology, part legend that, that is, um, that is native to the world itself. Yeah. The world, the world itself that yeah. is. Speaking. It's like one step removed. It's, it's a, yeah. 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 I, I don't, I, I think, I don't know. I, I can't imagine reading of the Silmarillion as if it were a sort of, um, Source material for for Middle Earth, which I think some people do read it as, but it, in a sense, I, I think it is. it's clearly yeah. not. Well, in a it's, sense, it is, but it's source. You've got to, yeah, treat it like source material as you would treat like a you know source material in the modern world, like a Lucan or yeah, as you were talking about, you know. Sure, um, sure, yeah. Some kind it's, of writer. It's, it's, it's a primary source, but it's yes, not exactly yes. In but it's sense, not. Yeah. Uh, it's not. It's not. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm struggling to think of an example because, you know, again, it's, 
2 a.m. and we're a bottle of wine in, but um, <laughs> yeah. it's not a, or at least I am, but <laughs> it's not a, it's not anything that, that you're, you know, you're citing your sort of literary criticism class. It's not, it's not like the, the thing that's, um, mm. that's not a good example either because you are, but you, but you know <laughs> what I mean? It's not, it's not your, mm. This is a disaster. It's just a disaster. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. I mean, it's not, uh, yeah, it's, well, it's not an objective relaying of events. Here. Like, so for example, if you read Harry Potter, right? Mm. The, the, the text yes. that you read Harry Potter, like the text that you, you read when you're reading Harry Potter, yeah. that is like, you take that to be like a uh, baseline reality, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's not what, that's not what this is. This is, this is more like a, a, a primary source in a reality that exists outside of the text itself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, exactly. and this is not, this is not, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's there really, you know, I, I, I yes, you got to say, yeah, no, but I think that's right. I mean, <laughs> it, and it really comes through, um, yeah. Again, in the sort of the genre, not the genre, not not the convention, but the, um, not just the like descriptive minutiae of the text, but in in its in its features. Um, again, there's a narrator who sort of, you know, is aware of the outcome. We're, we're seeing this from a great remove. Um, we're witnessing this history from a great, from a future, right, from the a future vantage, um, and. There's, uh, you know, there's a sort of narrative or narrative, um, I'm not trying to say that there's a kind of bias or a, an agenda that the narrator very clearly, I would say, um, displays in, in the text. And, you know, to my, you know, in my reading, that's fairly, fairly obvious throughout, um, there, there are certain judgment judgments cast on on certain characters and and less so on others and um you know again that speaks to me of a of a kind of mythological legendary text <laughs> more so than it does something you know a work of more objective history but um you know i think i think the example of feanor is a good one for assessing that um argument as you know and and for assessing the merits of that argument so um yeah. Anyway, so I think you know. I think next time, the next three chapters, um, will deal with Middle Earth and various other matters before we return to Feanor. But so perhaps next time we'll do chapters ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen because there's a couple of shorter ones there. So we should be able to get through those pretty quick. So up to the return of the Noldor, and um, then we'll we'll finish off Feanor's part of the story basically, and then we can get on, I guess, to the next part of the story, which is sort of the brief interlude of peace between Feanor's story and the tales that come after. So is there anything, I guess, final you'd, you'd want to say about these chapters or should we leave it there? I think we've covered it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everyone. And we'll, we'll get back to you next month with, with the next well, yeah, we'll do the next four chapters and we'll probably be as drunk as we are now. So please join us then and make sure to bring your bottle of wine. <laughs> All right. There you go. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much.